Have we made that point clear enough on this podcast? I think it. I don't think we have. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial pursuit, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs all around the globe seeking to do the same thing you are. If you want to know more about this program or this podcast or want to get barraged by a lot of annoying pop-ups, check out our website, lifestylebusinesspodcast.com. Yeah, buddy, it's the Lifestyle Business Podcast, episode 145 of the Taxes. Episode is going to be a good time today. Today, I am joined by my captain, my co-host, a man who puts the biz into business. How you doing, sir? Doing well. I think we've used that one before, right? I mean, we talk about business yeah. all the time. <laughs> uh, we got a, we got an iTunes review from Jameson Rance. He says, "I'm addicted to the LVP. This is a great podcast for people that are entrepreneurs at heart and need that extra." motivation to friggin do it all right ian today we're talking about one of our favorite topics so let's just uh, jump right into it with our our good friend david mckeegan all right so david in my mind you're famous because you you presented to me this idea of the thousand day principle which is the working title of the book that i've been struggling with for the past few months so i'm curious could you give us a, sort of an overview of what inspired this idea of the the thousand day principle it, probably the first time I ever heard anything like that was when I was about, I don't know, 21, 22 years old. I was dressed up in a suit and tie standing on the platform of a train station in Westchester heading into New York City for my first day of work uh, after college. And a friend's father was on the platform and saw me there and walked over and he said, you know, is this your first day? And uh, I said, yeah. He says, Oh, great. You only got 10,000 days to go. And I, I sort of looked at him. I was like, what do you mean I've got 10,000 days to go? And uh, he says, yeah, well, you know, the average person works 10,000 days. This is your first one. So you've got, you know, when you get to work, that starts the first of the 10,000. <laughs> What a jerk. <laughs> I want to let you guys know, we're going to be sharing all kinds of five surprising tax tips, you know, ways expats in particular and entrepreneurs can save money on your taxes. That's your specialty, Dave. But I want to indulge a little bit with this entrepreneurial talk because we're so fascinated uh, by what you've done with your business. Um, so how did, how did you get the idea for Greenback Tax Service? I'm curious, could you bring us back to the beginning? What was the entrepreneurial moment where you're like, this <laughs> could be an idea for us to pursue? Uh, okay, it was 2008. We were sitting on a beach in Croatia. Uh, Carrie was working for Barclays at the time. I was working for Bank of Scotland. Uh, we were both doing very well in our jobs and in our careers. We were on vacation in Croatia. We were sitting on a beach, and it was before we had kids, so we used to read a lot. I think I, <laughs> <laughs> I, think I was reading the four-hour work week. I forget what Carrie was reading. Probably something about planning for kids. <laughs> <laughs> Potentially. And, uh, you know, we were sort of kicking around the idea, okay, you know, what do we want our life to be like? You know, how do we want to live our life? You know, we get to decide, so let's... You know, think about it and decide. And what we started doing a couple of years before that, just to go back for a second, is uh, we would once a year sit down and write out all of our goals, you know, what we wanted to do over the next year, next three years, next five years, 
uh, what we, and then make up a financial plan to sort of back it up. Uh, so we'd look at how much money we were earning, what we thought we'd get in bonuses, how much we needed to save. Like, you know, I've heard someone say it's uh, conscious living. You know, you're actually, you sit down, mm-hmm. you decide what you want to do. You don't just let life happen to you. Uh, so in the spirit of that, we're sitting on this beach in Croatia. We started talking about some of this stuff. And we said, well, you know, what we want to be doing is traveling more. We want to have a family. And when we have the family, we want to be able to spend time with them. Uh, you know, we're probably both working, you know, 60 hour a week, 70 hour a week, something like that in London. And so the idea was, you know, do you want to bring your kids into a 70 hour, you know, 140 hour, if you count both of us, uh, work week? Uh, what's the point of having kids if you never see them, if, you know, you don't get to influence them? So the first thing we did was we broke out a notepad and we wrote down, uh, the goal was to get to 100 items. And we started writing out all the bus- all the different business ideas we could think of, uh, you know, what we could do, what we couldn't do, and, uh, you know, just anything we could think of. You know, if I remember correctly, we had uh, uh, frozen yogurt businesses in Brazil on there. You know, we had all sorts of, you know, crazy stuff on there. Basically just built some criteria around it. And the big criteria was that it had to be location independent. We had to be able to do it from anywhere. So then we went back to the list and we sort of eliminated everything that was, you know, location specific. Frozen yogurt, yeah, exactly. out. Frozen yogurt, you're out of here, forget <laughs> it. Uh, and then we thought, okay, well, what are things on here that, you know, we understand either from uh, having done something similar in the past or from it being a problem that we have? And the tax business kept rising to the top. Uh, you know, Carrie's background is in financial services marketing. Uh, I trained as a financial planner when I was in New York. Uh, you know, security licensed, insurance license, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and since we'd gotten to London uh, in 2004, our U.S. taxes had been a big pain point for us. Uh, so, you know, it was really just something we thought, okay, you know, this is a problem we know, we understand, and, you know, we sort of think we can go after it and tackle it. Now, was there, uh, was there a mental mindset shift you guys had to make? Because a lot of people would be in your boots at that time having the same sets of desires, but they would say, well, I'm not an accountant, so I'm not qualified then to help people with their accounting issues. Was that ever an issue that you guys contended with? Yeah, even at the time, I think I probably knew more than you know, 90% of the CPAs in the U.S. about expat taxes, just because you know I'd been so involved in our taxes for a while. You know, there was never an idea that, oh, you know, in order to start a tax company, you have to be an accountant. I'm sure that owners of hospitals aren't all doctors. You guys are entrepreneurs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you own a hospital, you don't have to cut into people necessarily. I guess one of the things, you know, a lot of people look at the entrepreneurial quest as risky, um, as something that, you know, shouldn't really be done. Maybe if you're planning on having a family, um, people are nervous about it because the outcomes don't seem as clear from the outside. I'm curious now in retrospect, and I know success can qualify all kinds of ills in the world, but, you know, now looking back on it, do you feel like you guys took a risk or that this was a a risky approach to life? Or do you feel more secure, um, going down this path? We tried to mitigate those risks as much as possible before we took them. 
when we were in Croatia, that was the beginning of the financial crisis. And, you know, we were both working for banks. Shortly thereafter, uh, the desk I was working on, which was a syndicated loan desk, just, it stopped. There's nothing to do. And, you know, the first half of that year, I did, I think it was a billion pounds of debt. Like, you know, I worked on a billion pounds worth of syndications. And the second half of the year, I didn't have a single pound. So, wow. you know, that gave us, uh, or gave me some time to sit down and think about it and work about it while being in the corporate environment, you know, having, continuing to get a paycheck, continuing to uh, have contributions to the 401k and, you know, the British equivalent. Also interesting, you know, to insight into, you know, when you think about these risks and locks and all this stuff, like you had a job that from the outside would look like the most secure type of employment you could have working at a major bank. And then all of a sudden it dries up. Right. Just goes to show that where's the security in these jobs, right? I mean, it's the banking industry in 2008. What's the next industry that everybody could be working in in 2013? Yeah, it was a 400-year-old bank, uh, which no longer exists. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's interesting, you know, before we got on the call, we were talking about, you know, all these opportunities that you guys are, are working on, even outside of the, like, there's all this other potential. And, you know, I don't know, I feel sold on this idea that once you, 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 find a way to mitigate the risks and get yourself through the first 1000 days. It's like the next 1000 are so much easier and so much more secure because you've got the skill set of the entrepreneur. So it's like you said, like you don't need to know how to do tax returns. You don't need to know how to cut people open. What you're going to do instead is focus your entrepreneurial skill set on good marketplaces, on marketplaces where people are hungry for solutions. And that's the skill set that's never going to go away. And so I do, I do look at it as, as you know, something that's more fundamentally secure, but the real tricky part is that first 1,000 days. Can you manage to, to survive and get through it? Because, it, it, you know, you guys managed to have an amazing success on your first run, but it could have been the case that, you know, greenback tax services didn't work out and then it would have had to have been the next thing. Yeah, exactly. The yogurt yeah. stand. Frozen, frozen uh, <laughs> snow cones in the beaches of Brazil. That, that was one of them. <laughs> so, David, you were telling us earlier that um, the U.S. tax code – so a lot of what we're going to talk about today is going to be really U.S. focused, but some of it could be relevant for uh, people from other places as well. But the U.S. tax code consisting of 3.8 million <laughs> words, which is sort of where you come in, because we're all confused as to, as to how to make the most of this situation. Um, and so what we've pulled together today is five expat tax tips that can save you money. All right. So the first one is to qualify for the foreign uh, earned income exclusion. What is that and what are the two ways we can qualify? Okay, the foreign earned income exclusion is it's a tax break for people who are working overseas and earning an income overseas. Now for the 2012 tax year, so the tax year we're filing for right now, uh, this can be a $95,100 benefit. So, you know, somebody like you, who's Dan, who's working and living uh, overseas, the first $95,100 you earn can be U.S. tax-free. So now, does that mean that I can just make $95,100 without paying any taxes? Or there are some liabilities in there as well, right? Well, it's without paying any U.S. income tax. Uh, now, depending on how you have your business structured, 
you may need to pay the self-employment tax, uh, you know, Social Security and Medicare tax, uh, which is, you know, it's 15.3% uh, right now. So, and that comes out before the foreign earned income exclusion. So, you know, if you're a digital nomad, you're running around the world uh, working overseas, and you can have a U.S.-based business. So if you're a sole proprietor, meaning you don't have any sort of corporate entity, or you're a LLC or uh, a partnership uh, or S-Corp, uh, you know, you'll have to pay the self-employment side of things yourself. Uh, it's a little different if you're a corporation. So, so if you're if you're like a sole proprietor or one of these tax-through organizations, you're going to still have this social security liability if you don't have a foreign corporation. Is that correct? Exactly. Okay. So if you're a complete digital nomad, it might make sense to run your PayPal through Singapore if you're an American citizen as opposed to a California LLC. Exactly. One of the things I think that's interesting about this FEIE um, that you mentioned is that you said this is the single most profound tax move an American can make. Could you just describe a little bit more in detail why that's the case? Well, okay. If you take, uh, you know, take anybody you know that's starting a business, right? You know, your first year, your first, going back to the thousand days, the first thousand days, money's going to be tight. Uh, so what can you do to help improve your cash flow? What can you do to help mitigate uh, you know, the financial risks of the business? And I think that going overseas is one of those things. You know, if you have a business you can run from anywhere, uh, running it in a place where you're going to pay a lot of tax versus a place where you're not going to pay any tax, you know, which one of those is going to help your cash flow more? Real quickly before we move on to the next point, there's two ways you can qualify for this. There's bona fide residence test, and then there's the physical presence test. Um, it, I don't meet very many people who are qualifying for the bona fide residence. Is that more for employees and not entrepreneurs? Well, it can be for entrepreneurs, but it's more for people that are have roots in a specific place. Uh, so, for instance, when Carrie and I were living in London, we had been there for six years. Uh, you know, we had residency in the UK. We paid UK taxes. We paid into uh, the UK you know, national insurance scheme and all this kind of stuff. So we qualified as bona fide residents when we were there. Most people that you talk to, most people that you know are just starting out, are going to qualify under the physical presence test, which basically means that you are in a foreign country for 335 days in a 365 day period. And Got this it. is even if you are going abroad, let's say you marry somebody who's uh, British and you move to the UK and your first year there, you're still going to need to qualify under the physical presence test because the bona fide resident test wouldn't kick in until you've already been living in one place for over a year. Got it. Interesting. All right. So we're a bunch of a commitment of phobes, so I don't know if the bona fide <laughs> residence test is going to apply to the physical. Yeah. You guys are all about, all about all right, the physical. So. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, so the number two interesting thing, let's talk a little bit about the F-bar. The F-bar is something, David, that uh, really scares people because the F-bar is this treasury form that you have to tell the U.S. government about all of your bank accounts worldwide. And one of the things that you were mentioning in your webinar materials, and if you don't mind, I'd like to post those materials at the blog, 
Um, is Yep, I updated it for you. Excellent. So the idea behind the FBAR is that it, it's not really focused on the small guys like us. Can you tell us the background and the purpose of this form that is looms so intimidatingly in, in the minds of entrepreneurs? The FBAR is a form you need to fill out if you have over $10,000 or the U.S. dollar equivalent in all of your foreign financial accounts combined. Uh, the $10,000 mark, that's a big red flag in the financial industry. You know, you're not allowed to take more than $10,000 from one country to the next without reporting it. Uh, you're not allowed to deposit more than $10,000 in a bank account in the U.S. without the bank notifying uh, I don't remember who, but you know, there's a form that the bank has to fill out notifying somebody that you know, a $10,000 cash deposit was made. You know, it, it's a money laundering thing. It's an anti-drug thing, all this kind of stuff. So rewind for a second. The FBAR is there to try and catch people who are hiding money overseas. Uh, you know, there was a big case against UBS a couple of years ago. Uh, Basically, you know, UBS was setting up tax structures, helping wealthy people hide their money uh, inside UBS uh, to avoid tax in the U.S. and across Europe and everywhere else. Uh, so what the FBAR is doing is saying, well, now you have to report these accounts to us each year. Uh, you as the individual and you know, the FBAR and you know, the FACTA and all this kind of stuff is going to carry over to the institutions as well. So to get speculative here, then what they're trying to do. So they, they just got hot on the FBAR, the, that being the U.S. Treasury, within the last half a decade. So is the idea then that they're trying to um, sort of cross-reference the FBAR coming from individual Americans with the, I think it's FACTA that's coming from the banking organizations themselves. Is that the idea? Yeah, I don't think they're quite there yet, but I believe that that's what they're going to try and do. Okay. And so this really affects uh, expats because a lot of times, you know, we'll have uh, over $10,000 in a bank account, you know, where you're living. Say you're living in the Philippines or something like that. You have a local bank account. And maybe this is where you keep your, uh, your cash flow or your checking account, right? So uh, as expats, we need to file this FBAR if we've got over $10,000 in a foreign bank account. And it also doesn't get filed. The FBAR doesn't get filed at the same time as you file your taxes, correct? Correct. The FBAR is a completely separate form. It goes to the Treasury, not to the IRS. And so the FBAR has to be filed by June 30th each year, uh, whereas you know, your taxes, if, if you're living in the U.S., they're due April 15th. Uh, if you're living overseas, you get an automatic extension to June 15th, and then you can file for an additional extension to October 15th. Excellent. All right, let's move on to point number three, which is that you might be eligible for a foreign tax credit if you are paying any income taxes in a foreign country. So in other words, the IRS does not want to double tax you. Explain how this works. The government wants you to work overseas because you're going to learn stuff. You're going to be able to you know, bring business back and forth and you know, all these wonderful things of having people uh, be mobile in the workforce. So the foreign tax credit is designed to help people who yeah, you know, to avoid double taxation, who might get taxed if it, if they were only using the foreign earned income exclusion. So, yeah, you, know, you take me as an example. When I was living, when Carrie and I were living in the UK, uh, we were both doing very well at the banks we worked at, and we were making well over the foreign earned income exclusion amount at the time. 
but we were also paying British tax. And the British tax system, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was you know, 20% on the first 35,000 pounds that you make and then 40% on everything uh, above, you know, I think it was like 40,000 pounds or something like that. So, you know, we were paying a higher tax rate in the UK than we would have been paying if we were paying tax in the US. So the US government was actually giving us a credit for what we we're paying in the UK that we can carry forward on our US taxes. Oh, wow. I see. So if you're, so the idea is that if you're making $100,000 a year in the UK and they're charging you, you know, $50,000 a year because you have to pay for the NHS or whatever. And then um, basically the IRS is like, well, we would have only charged you $35,000. So you get a $15,000 tax credit to carry forward into the next tax year. Is that the idea? You get a dollar for dollar tax credit for whatever you're paying to the foreign government. So, yeah, if you're paying uh, 40,000 pounds a year in tax in the UK, uh, yeah, potentially you could get that big a credit. Now, you can't double dip. So you can't use the foreign earned income exclusion and take the foreign tax credit on the same money. Okay. So so if you made then 95.1, uh, you got your first 95.1 tax free, but then paid 40% taxes up to your, say, $150,000 salary you would get a tax credit on all that taxation over and above the 95-1. Yeah, basically, yeah. We were saying earlier in the show that Shakespeare only wrote 900,000 words and they were much easier to understand <laughs> than the 3.8 million that the U.S. government has written. <laughs> all right. The fourth point is that you might be eligible for a foreign housing credit. So how does this benefit the, the work? The foreign housing credit uh, can really help people out if you're living in high-cost areas. Uh, so... The way this works, this is tied into the foreign earned income exclusion, uh, but basically you can take a credit for your overseas housing costs. Uh, yeah, this would include things like rent, uh, utilities, excluding uh, telephone, uh, furniture rental, all these things that if you're sent overseas for a couple of years, uh, you're probably going to end up paying. The IRS recognizes that some areas are more expensive than the average cost in the U.S. So you would get a higher level of credit in different areas. So for instance, if you're living in London, the maximum foreign housing credit is $83,000. In Paris, it's $84,000. In Singapore, it's $67,000. In Hong Kong, it's $114,000. If you're working overseas and you have really high housing expenses, but you're making a lot of income, you can use this as another tool in your arsenal to minimize your U.S. taxes. Now, Dave, is this is this a guaranteed slam dunk for people? I mean, they just fill out the form and all of a sudden you've got this foreign housing credit or is this something you have to apply for? I mean, I'm an entrepreneur living over in, let's say, Vietnam or let's say Hong Kong. Is it a slam dunk for me? Yeah, as long as you qualify under the physical presence test or uh, the bona fide residence test, you should get this. Now, yeah, there's limits and yeah, it's a rather complicated calculation to see how much you can do. Sounds, uh, sounds complicated. Sounds like I need to get greenback taxes involved. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> Speaking of getting greenback involved, uh, let's, move on, let's move on to number five. I, I'm very curious about this one. Um, you, you have a, a, a clever trick that has saved individuals up to $5,000 in just 30 minutes of math. So explain <laughs> to us what this 30 minutes of math might look like, because that's, that's about 29 minutes more of math I've done in my whole life. So, 
Well, okay. Most people who uh, are working overseas are probably going to be making money in the local currency, or at least not in U.S. dollars. Now, when you fill out your U.S. taxes, you have to report everything in U.S. dollars. So, yeah, again, we'll use London as the example. Yeah, you're living in London, you're making pounds. The exchange rate on pounds uh, can vary pretty wildly. You know, when I was there, it was $2 to the pound. Now it's a dollar and a half to the pound. Uh, so what you can do is you can look at how your income comes in and you can calculate the IRS lets you either calculate on a daily, a monthly, or a yearly exchange rate. You have to be consistent across your entire tax return, but you get to pick how it's going to work. So you can use the exchange rate that has your U.S. dollar income be the lowest possible it could be just by looking up you know, the exchange rate on the days you got paid. You know, in the UK, you get paid 12 times a year, plus if you get a bonus, you know, that'd be uh, a 13th payment. So you, know, you look up exchange rates for 13 days, and you're going to know whether or not you're better off using an annual rate or a daily rate or a monthly rate. And you know, we've seen people save over five grand on this, and it really only takes about half an hour to do it. So if you guys are into this stuff, greenbacktaxservices.com has tons of helpful tips. I actually subscribe to your blog, Dave. I don't know if you know that, but I follow along with the updates that you're following along from the IRS. And that's a, a huge service to me uh, in and of itself. And I am a client of Greenback Tax Services, so I can totally vouch <laughs> for what, what you guys are doing. And um, a lot of listeners might not know, but you're behind so many of the ideas on this show sort of quietly because... Um, even since when I first moved to the Philippines, I think back in 2009, I think you, you've been sending me tips. Um, and it's just been so awesome to see you and Carrie uh, grow this amazing business that now employs uh, 20 people worldwide and, and just growing like wildfire. And, and to have you be sort of behind the show, uh, behind the scenes the whole way has been an honor. So thank you so much for everything you've done for us. And uh, oh, it's going to be a fun couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. So greenbacktaxservices.com. Come, uh, you know, go there if you need your taxes done. That's what Ian and I do, and uh, can't say more about it. It's, it's, it's money, baby. <laughs> you asked me to pull together uh, a couple fun facts for you. So just real quick, I've got a couple for you here. The bonus section, you ready? According to the National Taxpayers Union, U.S. taxpayers spend more than 7.6 billion hours complying with the federal tax requirements in the U.S. each year. Seems a little low to me. Seems a little low. <laughs> I've got one for you as well, Ian. Within the U.S., uh, deaths from traffic accidents around April 15th are, on average, over the last 30 years, 6% higher uh, than they are the rest of the year. So yeah, keep that in mind if you're going to take the motorbike out anytime in April. Oh, I, I figured what you meant was people are rolling up the windows and putting the tailpipe in the, uh, <laughs> putting the, tailpipe in the garden hose, but... I think uh, with all these electric cars, they're going to have to get a little bit more creative. <laughs> hey, Dave, you know, while we're on the topic, do you have a speculative opinion as to why is the tax code so complex? Is it because there's so many hands in the pie trying to get, get their interests spoken for? Um, is it willfully obscured? Or is it just a matter of having you know, the most complex economy on earth and the most complex tax code to come along with it? Do you have an opinion? Uh, yeah, I think my opinion... You've got a two-party system. The parties more or less seem to hate each other. And you know, they just they can't sort it out. And then you got so many different special interest groups 
you know, flooding into the mix that, uh, you know, it really just, there's a loophole for everything. There's three exceptions for everything. There's, yeah, you know, all these different things rather than just saying, you know, we're going to do a flat tax of 15% and then we'll throw another, uh, you know, value added tax on top of it. That kind of thing, the way you see some other countries do it. Three three point eight million words later, a bunch of podcasts and seven billion hours of heartaches and a few road deaths to combine, and, and here we are. All right, greenbacktaxservices.com, everybody. Thanks so much, Dave. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. All right, it's just the tips. Hey, I got a quick tip for you, Ian. Uh, this is uh, courtesy of Cody McKibben from uh, Digital Nomad Academy and Thrilling Heroics. Told me about this application called Caffeine App, and it's very simple but it comes in handy quite a bit. Actually, I'm using it right now. You ever get that annoying thing where your computer just wants to go to sleep like every two minutes or on you? I think this is just for the Mac, right? Yeah. So uh, if you, if you uh, is there any LBP listeners that are still using P- PCs? That's the broader <laughs> question. I know Rob Walling switched over. I saw that. So uh, just must be the end of the, uh, the beginning of the end for PC users. Rome is burning. Yeah. So anyway, Caffeine app will keep your computer screen bright while you're doing webinars, while you're doing podcasts, or while you're just collaborating with people in an office environment. And you want to keep that screen bright so that you don't have to keep touching your mouse pad. Um, And one other thing I want to share with you that I found out the other day that was shocking, shocking to me, Ian, um, is that if you tell Chrome browser to save your passwords those passwords will be visible in your Chrome preferences. Wait a minute. You save your passwords in Chrome? I'm... (laughs) (laughs) Hey, just a security tip out there for anybody that saves their passwords in Chrome. Chrome does not encrypt those passwords, and you can print them in your preferences. That's a huge security uh, usability uh, conundrum. I have no idea why that would be the case. The only thing I can hypothesize is... um is they figure you saved them, so they figured you want to know what they are. But I think what you're talking about is when yeah. you save your passwords in Chrome, you go into preferences, and then you go into passwords, and then you can essentially mouse over and say show passwords, and then it'll show you yeah. all the passwords that you've saved. Shocking. Shocking to me. Yeah, bad idea. <laughs> all right, Ian, man, what a great time getting on the horn with David McKeegan. When I got off the phone with David, my first thought was we have to do this again. This guy has so much knowledge. I've been pushing him, of course, to do a podcast, but uh, he's busy running a business, I guess. So you can't have it all. All right, this week, uh, we are going to play you guys out with Ian's favorite song of the moment. It's Drift Shop. It's a viral sensation and with no record label. Um, and Ian, I'm sure you used to rock the thrift shop when you were in high school. I did. Right? You were a hipster. Yeah, totally. <laughs> all right, buddy. Let's uh, catch up next Thursday morning. Booyah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Don't be shy. We've got a mailing list, lifestylebusinesspodcast.com. Go there, get yourself signed up, and we'll keep you up to date on everything we do. Walk into the club like, what up? I got a big cock. I'm just pumped. I bought some shit from a thrift shop. Ice on the fringe is so damn frosty. The people like, damn, that's a cold-ass honky. Yeah, buddy.